I want to speak tonight about faith under trial. And I'll tell you where I'm heading, just in case you got depressed already. When you meet with God, many of the questions that you've had throughout the whole of your life, the unanswered questions, the questions for which there seems to be no philosophical, logical answer, and even the Bible does not give us the full revelation, but points us in the direction of an encounter with God. Here, many people say, when I get to heaven, I'll tell God a thing or two. Oh, yes, you think you will. I think you'll be on your face, worshiping God. And some of the questions, as legitimate as they are, we have on the earth, maybe won't be quite so important. But the questions that will remain will be answered. So we're going to go right to the back of the book of Job. Job chapter 42. We're going to read a few verses there, then dip into the book and see what God wants to say to us. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is an extraordinary book. I once visited an elder back in my days when we were worshipping together in Cambridge. And uh, the elder was laid up in bed. He looked awful. He looked as sick as a dog. And to add to his misery, he was wading his way through the book of Job. And that may not be the right book to read when you're sick. You need a bit of health. It certainly is a long and intense book. And in many ways, quite difficult to understand, quite difficult to interpret. But some of the things we realize about it is that God is speaking into this situation of human suffering. And it's always all about faith under trial. Socrates said, an unexamined life is not worth living. And so Socrates conducted his business by asking awkward questions and questioning and questioning and from that we have this Socratic method of questioning try to get to the bottom of things rather like a little child will say why 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 well he wasn't so popular for it and I, I would add to that insight this statement an unexamined faith is not worth having an unexamined faith is not worth having it's not that we have to go around and wear our doubts on our sleeve, but, but it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to examine. I know when I share what I want to share with my friends who are not yet Christians, one of the things that gets through to them is speaking to them about the way in which I constantly 
examine my faith and re-examine my faith. Let me just give you, not to go off piece here, but let me just give, give you an example. Christianity is one of those rare religions that is based in history. And any historical claim can be checked out. So, for example, we may ask the question, it's not my topic today, but just to illustrate what I was saying earlier, did Jesus actually exist? I mean, is there historical evidence for the existence of Jesus? Even before you turn to the Gospels, yes, there is. Way outside of the Gospels, there's evidence that Jesus lived. And if Jesus lived, how can we know what he said, what he did? And those kind of historical questions can be asked and answered. And as you go through that process, you discover that we can show through historical evidence, not only did Jesus exist, but the gospel records are reliable and give us an accurate record of the things that Jesus said and did. And then we go on from there to say, well, what does that mean? And just if you want to know where the end that, that might lead to, you get to the resurrection, which is a fact that can be corroborated by circumstantial historical evidence which can convince people that Jesus actually was raised again from the dead. And somehow that clinches it, that Jesus was no ordinary person. So an unexamined faith is not worth having. And I, I believe that God, that's God's perspective as well. Because God will allow tests and trials to come into your life. And the difference between God's testings and the devil's temptations is this. The devil tempts you to pull you down and destroy you. But God tests you and allows you to be tested so that you can be strengthened and you can be encouraged and you can be, as Job says, purified and, and, and affirmed in all the things that God has done for you and all the things that God has said to you, even though there will be outstanding questions which perhaps, like Job, one day will melt away in the presence of God himself. A little bit about the structure of the book, not to go into too much technical detail, but it begins with a couple of chapters which are known as the prologue. And in, in those chapters, it's quite alarming in a way because it gives you the background to the book, and there is Job, a righteous person, one who loves God, who is doing everything he can, set in the kind of patriarchal period, is priest over his own house, and, uh, and uh, there is this extraordinary heavenly scene in which the sons of God and the adversary amongst them comes in, and, and God himself points to the adversary, another name for that is Satan, points to the adversary, have you seen my servant Job? points him out. Now, I'm rather unnerved at the thought that God might point us out and say, hey, Satan, have a look at this one. And uh, I'm not going to go into, into detail, but there is reason to believe that that situation of heavenly, heavenly court has completely changed. Satan has been cast out, and, and maybe that now no longer applies to our faith today. But nevertheless, back in the day, that's what happened. And uh, uh, Satan responds to God, says, well, does Job love you for nothing? Anybody would love you. The way you've hedged him around with blessing, everything's worked out in his life, he's got no tests, no trials, everything is going well for him. Of course, of course he would love you. But just take some of these things away and you will see Job curse you to your face. So God says, okay, Satan, I allow you. 
my words, not the words of the Bible, that's effectively means. Then we have a number of trials that hit Job, calamities in a rapid succession. The Sabaeans come and raid and kill and destroy. The fire, the fire of God, the Bible says, fell from heaven, destroyed other things. The Chaldeans came and a wind came. And all, in all of these things, Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In one of these things, not one of these things that he sinned with his lips, he kept his integrity. Don't let people tell you that Job suffered because he had a lack of faith. Don't tell, let people tell you that Job suffered because he allowed some doubt or fear into his life. No, no, no. Later on we see that God upheld Job in a basic sense, but nevertheless, God allowed these things to happen so that Job's faith would be tested and strengthened. And even for us today, we'd have an example of patience in suffering. Even Jesus said, remember the patience of Job. And I believe we need patience. And I often ask God for patience and ask him to give it me quickly and in the shortest possible way. So then, the adversary speaks back to God and says, all right, skin for skin. A man will give everything he has for his life or his health. And isn't that true today? In times of sickness, people will do absolutely anything. They'll go to any pathway possible, even step off the path of light and righteousness and seek help sometimes in all kinds of illegitimate ways. I'm not talking about legitimate medicine. I'm talking about all kinds of funny things that happen. And uh, God says, okay, go ahead, but you can't take his life. Now, this is very interesting shows us that while God is not the author of evil, no way does darkness come from the light that is God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. But God is so big and so in overall control that he can at times allow certain parameters within which the enemy can operate to further God's purposes. Remember Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those that love God, and those who are the called according to his purpose. In fact, as R.T. Kendall expounds this, he says, God can so make things that have seemed to have gone so wrong appear in the end to be so much part of God's plan that it was almost as if God intended it that way from the beginning. God is so big. We have nothing to fear. Whatever comes our way only comes by God's permission, and God will not allow anything to enter your life that will not be, first of all, for his glory, and secondly, for your ultimate good. Well, we say that with all New Testament insight. And what happened then was that Job was afflicted with a horrendous disease. I haven't even tried to diagnose it medically. It's beyond my expertise, but it was a horrendous disease. And there, the outward manifestations, symptoms of this, he had horrid, oozing, weeping boils all over his body. Now, he was depressed, and he begins by cursing the day he was born. You know, I, I don't think that negative talk is particularly helpful, but I, but I do believe this. Whatever is going on the inside of you, be real with God. Tell him exactly how you feel. And God can take reality. God isn't offended when we say, you know, God, I, I don't understand this. I really feel you've let me down here, and I'm, I'm not criticizing you, but, but I, I, I ask for your help. And then Job's three friends arrive. 
wonderful friends they were. We have, uh, we have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And I would say sometimes with friends like these, who needs enemies? They sat down and the first thing they did was the best thing they did and the last good thing they did. They sat in silence for seven days. Way, way back in my early years in pastoral ministry, I was, uh, apart from the time I was in Kensington Temple, very early on, I was sent into exile, and there I was in a, in a church where the average age was 85 in, in the shade. And um, I learned the ministry of bereavement, learned the ministry of funerals. Weddings weren't so frequent, but funerals were almost every week. And I learned to take a good funeral. And uh, speaking to people who are bereaved, well, that's your first mistake. You know, any, any words you say don't really count, not in the first little while. It's just being there. And I think at times, instead of quoting scripture or trying to tell people if they had more faith, this wouldn't happen to them, or if they could just repeat this phrase enough times with the right heart, everything would go away. Simply accept and acknowledge we are living in a broken world. And bad things happen to good people, just as good things happen to bad people. So we don't philosophize, we don't make a theory out of it. We simply enter in with compassion and feeling to weep with those that weep. Well, they did that. Seven days, good for them. But afterwards, it goes downhill. And one after the other, they give their analysis, and they start talking about to Job about what happened and... First of all, Eliphaz said, well, you know you're suffering because you've sinned, because those who sin are punished. You're suffering, therefore you have sinned. Thanks, friend, for that kind of comfort. Has anybody said that to you? Anybody said that to you? Uh, well, you know, I know that we are chastened for the things that we do. I know that God chastens us in love, but it's not helpful to link all suffering directly with personal sin. Then Bildad comes along and, and he says a slightly different thing. Well, you're a hypocrite, Job. And, um, you know, the, because you're such a hypocrite, this has happened to you. And, and, and really, if you were pure and upright, nothing would have happened to you. Similar argument. Then Zophar comes along and condemns Job uh, uh, for his verbosity. Job must have been a preacher. Uh, Job's verbosity, his presumption, and his sinfulness. And saying, well, actually, you know, the truth is, I'm so fed up with listening to you. God has given you far less than you deserve, so I'd settle for that. And then along comes a younger man. His name is Elihu, and Elihu says, I've had enough, I've waited because I'm a young man, I've listened to everybody else talk, and I can't hold myself in any longer. And, you know, he purports to be saying something different and adds a, a bit of uh, chastening and saying, Job, you've got to learn to be humble and all this kind of stuff, adds really not a great deal. Now, as you read this book, I've taken you right way through now to the late 30s in the chapters, and uh, what happens is during this speech, a storm begins to gather. And this storm is quite interesting. Amanda and I spent just some time away in Cuba on a holiday, and it was their rainy, stormy season, and, and it was interesting to go from bright, heavy sunshine to, to see a storm coming. It was a storm that just passed by Cuba and went on to be a, um, a hurricane 
that went, thank God. Well, I shouldn't say that, but anyway, we missed it, and Florida got it. But that storm, so dramatic, just, just to watch it, the lightning, the thunder, the clouds, uh, sky graying over. And this is happening. And finally, when this last speaker finishes, when uh, Elihu has done, we realize that this is no ordinary storm. This is God coming, and he's going to speak. What an amazing thing he says. He speaks to Job, and he says, Job, you've had a lot to say for yourself. Let me ask you some questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And there is a lot of poetry here, a wonderful speech showing the wonders of God in creation. And said, Job, you have a lot to say. You, you think you can outsmart me. But basically, Job, you know nothing. And, and, and the story of this goes, if we cannot understand the mysteries, the workings of God in this great created world, this universe of ours, and not for the want of trying, and, and science has gone a long way in explaining how the mechanisms of the world operate. But if we don't even plumb the depths of this, how can we even begin to understand the workings of God in the depths of the human soul. And so then we have Job's final response that we'll get to. I've heard about you, but now I see you. No more questions. God, I just turn my heart fully to you and turn away from my weakness, my frailty, my misunderstandings, and I just worship you. And the theme of worship that we've had today, so many questions are answered when you meet God in worship without him having to say one word about your situation and your circumstances. And I encourage you to become such a real worshiper that whatever is going on in your life, and we'll be praying for the sick tonight, and God is a healing God. Can I have an amen to that? But there are mysteries even in this ministry of healing. There are mysteries in the way which God deals with us and God works in our lives. And, and we know that the ultimate healing to which all present time healings point is the resurrection of the body and the future life of God's fullness that we'll experience on that great day. But in the meantime, whether we are healed or not, we love God. Whether our circumstances change or not, we worship God. Whether anything different happens and whether our dreams come true, whether our aspirations happen, all these things are secondary things. We seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that it's going to be all right. Now, on, en route, I want to point out a couple of things that Job said, which point us in the direction of Jesus and what he's done in our lives. First of all, if you could turn to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. And uh, th these are some of the high points, although I hope I don't spoil it for you today. But I want to show you that while Job has flashes of insight, he's still speaking from a spirit of demandingness, a spirit of entitlement. One of the things that I think will... will uh, 
an obstacle, put it this way, an obstacle to our spirituality is the thought that God is there for us. He is there for our comfort. He is there for our convenience. And, and not the other way around. We are there for God. And, and we, we trust God, we believe God, we search for God, we're open to everything that God has for us, but never once do we petulantly stamp our feet, click our fingers and say, God, sort this out, because you're supposed to be looking after me. We trust God with the small things. We trust God with the big things. Now, en route, in Job chapter 9, we have this wonderful statement in Job chapter 9, verse 32 and verse 33. Job is struggling. He wants his day in court. He doesn't want to communicate with humans any longer, with men. He wants to communicate with God. He said, well, you don't understand me. I want my day in court. I want to see God. But the problem is, where is he? God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we should go to court together. Nor is any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. The NIV says any intercessor. Now the feeling that Job had, the need for a mediator, the need for an intercessor, not just a human intercessor, but one that is more than human, that need, that longing is a divinely inspired longing. Because that's exactly what we have in the Christian gospel. We have Jesus Christ as our heavenly high priest, who is our mediator, who is our intercessor, and that one intercedes for us and know that he is a compassionate and faithful high priest and that he is touched, as the old King James Version says, with the feelings of our infirmities. He himself knows what it is to go through the human experiences the losses, the gains, the joys, the sorrows, the pains, and even the sufferings of death and the torments he experienced. Oh yes, when anybody is suffering, you can know one thing for sure. Jesus is right there with you. He knows what you're going through. And even if that doesn't help you with the understanding, okay, well, if he knows what I'm going through, why doesn't he take it away? The point is, though, is that he is not some God who is divorced and separated and removed from human experience. God manifested in the flesh, the one who is a faithful and compassionate high priest who feels with us. And that compassion is not just a sense of identification and saying, yeah, I know how you feel, but it means that he is going to act and he may not act according to our time scale. He may not act in a way that we want him to do. But we know that his action will surely come. And when it comes, we'll be able to look back and say, Thank you, Jesus. You done good. You did it well. And so Job is feeling for this. He wants an intercessor, a representative. Now, that so far is so good. But notice this element, which is one of the main reasons why God allowed the trial to come to get that demanding spirit of self-vindication out of him. He said, I have no man that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. 
In other words, I'm looking for an advocate who will represent me and who will vindicate me to show these friends and everybody else that I am right. Now that slight spirit of self-vindication, that slight spirit of demandingness, that slight spirit of entitlement was the very thing that God wanted to root out of him so that Job would not be looking for self-indication, but his trust in God will be so affirmed that no matter whatever happens, he will trust God. And even that other glorious statement, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, and from my flesh I will be able to answer him and show him that I was right all along. So there's the intercessor. Now we're going to go quickly to Job 19. And here we have it, this wonderful passage that speaks so clearly of the resurrection. Job 19, verse 25. Here it is. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh... I shall see God. Okay, a wonderful statement. And if you take it out of context, in a way we're entitled to do that, we can see that again, here is a wonderful New Testament declaration of faith. Our Redeemer lives. And if he lives, that presupposes that as Redeemer, he passed through death, and, and we can add a whole wide range of New Testament interpretation and insight, reading it back into this passage, and see glorious New Testament truth. But we must remember its context. It's not just that Job is saying, my Redeemer lives, and I know that I will, though my flesh is destroyed, I'm going to stand in resurrection glory alongside my Redeemer, and that's going to be the end of the story. No, no, no. It is in the context of him longing to speak with God and meet God and complain to God and get an answer from God that satisfies him and vindicates him. So that wonderful statement of faith that it is is still tinged with this spirit of selfish, demandingness, longing that we shall be vindicated. Now, let's pause there and think about our lives. I don't know if you're having an argument with somebody right now. If there's, I don't know, well, a lot of people looked up and said, how do you know? Well, I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but it happens. Right? We can say, or not happen, but it does happen. And um, usually what happens is that both people are absolutely convinced that they are right. Absolutely convinced that the other person is wrong. And their prayer go like this, Lord, bless that person, make him see how wrong he is and how right I am. Amen. On the other side, the same prayer is going up. And I think that God sometimes wants to take us and bash our heads together and say yes to both of you and no to both of you. And that's the picture here. That, that when we are wronged or going through a sense of injustice, we long for vindication. We long for people to tell us that we are right. And yet the truth is that very often we're not that right after all. 
And uh, we have our friends around us who affirm us and tell us that sometimes they switch sides and go, go to the other side. But uh, very, very rarely are we so 100% in the right. And even if we were, it is always best to let God do the talking. Don't you try and vindicate yourself and justify yourself. I think when you do that, God says, get on with it. Remember, slightly different context. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do not repay evil for evil. And so this is very relevant to us. And I want to say this, I won't go into great detail, because this runs through the theme of many, many of my messages. I believe that the Pentecostal charismatic movements and streams need to grow up in this respect. We need to move away from seeing our faith is all about me, what I can do, what God can give me, and our faith is there to enter into more and more and more blessings for our lives. As important as those things are, and as legitimate as those things are, if they are in second place, and if we deal with the spirit of demandingness. And I think very often that the tests and trials that God brings into our lives is not so much to humble us in a humiliating way, but to wean us off dependence on second things, to come back to the primary focus of our lives, which is God himself. I'm nearly through because I want us to go into worship and into ministry. So we go back to Job chapter 42. You can read it for yourself, for yourself, and if you follow a daily Bible reading, I don't know where Job comes in our Kensington Temple Bible reading program, but uh, watch out for it, because it's well worth reading and persevering through. Job chapter 42. Here we have God finally appearing. Job gets what he wants. He gets a one-on-one -on -one with God. He gets his day in court. He gets to speak to God himself, but he is forced, first of all, to listen as God says, you got some questions? I got some questions. Tell me if you can answer me. And Job is utterly broken as he sees, well, I've talked about things far away above my understanding. And I should have been much more careful in my speech. I should have been much, much more patient and trustful of God and not thinking that it was all about me, 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 and me. And here is the great denouement of it all. Job 42, verse 5. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now, let's not denigrate that. He's not saying, I just hear, I just know of you. He says, I know you. I know you from what I've heard of you, whatever scriptures were available or not available, the great traditions and Jewish revelation would have given him so much information about God, enough for him to live a life of openness, a, a life of faith, a life of faithfulness. And now that is deepened, and he goes to a new dimension. Then he says, but now my eye see, sees you. So he's saying, I've never been this close to you before. I've heard about you, and I've trusted you. I've believed in you, and I've benefited from that. But you know what? 
Now I see you close up. Now I see who you really are. To see you are so great, so glorious, so good, so wonderful, so powerful, so wise. I was a fool even to begin to question you and certainly a fool to expect that the whole of your purposes revolve around my present happiness. How wonderful that God meets with him. Then he says this, therefore I abhor myself. Now, the marginal reference there is despise. Let's, let's deal with this because I certainly don't want to teach tonight that this, this is the correct attitude, that the only way to be godly is to despise yourself and to walk around with self-hatred. It is not that. It's not self-misery. It's not feeling sorry for yourself. It is not being down on yourself. Brokenness is a totally different thing. Brokenness means that you've come to the end of yourself and out of faith, you commit yourself to God and say, God, I hand this over to you. Let me speak directly into your life right now. In all kinds of circumstances that I can imagine, and maybe with a bit of discernment, discern, but let's not go there. Let me simply say this. Where in your life do you need to hear this? Come to an end of yourself trying to make it happen, trying to sort it out as much as you want to behave responsibly, you cannot enter into the strivings of the human flesh and the strivings of the human imagination and just say, God, I give it to you. I hand it over to you. From this point of view, say, I can't, God, but you can. And I will trust you. With the outcome, I will trust you. Whether the answer is yes, whether the answer is no, whether the answer is later, whether, whatever the answer is, and God, I will not specifically look to see this situation resolved in my way, my timing. I trust you with everything. And when you reach that point, the faith that has been tested now becomes triumphant. And it's absolutely amazing some of the most triumphant Christians I know who glow with the glory of God are people who still live with their problems, who still live with pain, who can look back and, and see many things that never happened in the way that they wanted them to happen, but somehow have reached in such a relationship with God that it almost doesn't matter. Almost. But it does matter. In the, in the, to the degree that not one thing that has happened to you which is negative or apparently destructive or, or confusing, not one thing will pass by God's attention and there is coming a day when God's people will be vindicated and all this stuff will be resolved. That's the good news. Uh, I suppose I've got to say what the bad news is. Maybe it's not bad news anyway. It's about mature faith. For many of those things, we will not get the answer until we see God face to face. And then it almost won't matter because he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be such a wonderful reconciliation. 
And he says, I repent in dust and ashes. Repentance is an extraordinary thing. It means essentially that we begin as never before to see things from God's point of view. And that's what every real encounter with God will bring. A revelation of himself. I've often said, though the Bible is full of many promises, somebody once told me 6,000 promises. They must have read it in a book. I don't think they counted them for themselves. The Bible is full of so many promises. Wonderful promises. But all these promises, when it comes down to it, boils down to this one thing. God promises us himself. And that's enough. Can we have the singers and musicians back, please? I remember once, this is a defining moment for me, many years ago, ministering in Brazil, in the thrust of what can only be described as revival, a, for, a form of revival anyway. And uh, ministering in very large auditoria, thousands of people coming, taking it very, very seriously, spending all day in prayer and preparation for the evening service. And I remember one, one day spending the whole day, no interruptions, no evil mail, no email, no calls, just spending time with God. And at the end of that time of preparation, I felt ready. It was wonderful. Knock at the door, time to go. Go to the bathroom, just adjust, clean, clean my teeth, whatever. And it lasted about 10 seconds, friends. Suddenly, though I had believed, and I was, in the presence of God, we're in the presence of God at all times, but if you are seeking God for hours, I'm just talking, this is not about, look, look how much time I spend with God. It's just, just sharing this with you. I have to say that to say what I'm about to say. I was ready. But in those few seconds, something happened that I can hardly describe. This is the best way I can describe it. Now, you know, God is present everywhere. He's here now. Let me describe that as God's background presence. Because if he stepped into the foreground, we, 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 we wouldn't be sitting. We'd be on our faces. Probably, we'd leap out of our bodies and say, I'm coming home. We'd certainly fall at his feet dead. And it was as if that God took his background presence, the technical word for that is omnipresence, his everywhere presence, and just brought it forward by a tiny, tiny amount that the difference was so incredible. Because though I'd been in the presence of God, I could feel the Holy Spirit, I could sense that words of knowledge already forming in my heart, ready to go and preach all of that seemed as nothing to those 10 seconds of God manifesting his presence, manifesting his glory in ever so much the tiniest proportion. And these were my thoughts. 
No amount of suffering, no amount of pain on this earth is worth comparing with those 10 seconds of the tiniest revelation of God's glory. And I also thought, this is what heaven must be like. Anyway, the end of the story would be the most amazing miracles that took place. Jesus himself came and stood with us and ministered. It was absolutely, we'll tell that story another time. The whole point is, is that whatever the question, the answer is him. Whatever the problem, the solution is the presence of God. And as we've been saying all today, worship gives us access into God's presence whereby we can touch him and he can touch us.